something changed about the way he thought about that blanket from the time he entered that room to the time that he left. It, uh, it wasn't the blanket. It was what he knew about that old blanket that had been just laying on the back of a chair. <laughs> he had discovered its worth. And, and as a result, he no longer looked at it the way that he once had. As I understand the story, he left under armed guard and took it directly to a bank safe deposit box. He didn't treat it the same. It had become to him a treasure. A national treasure, according to the appraiser. See, the value you assign to something really does affect how it affects you. And this year, our goal as a church family is to have something similar to that happen. Not, not with some household item, but with a household name to be sure. This year, our goal is to draw near to Jesus our good and mighty King, such that we see Him differently than when the year started. We value Him differently than we did at the start of the year. See, if we get it right, if we see Jesus, our good and mighty King, for whom He truly is, and we value Him rightly, And we draw near to him. It just might take our breath away. It might even bring tears to our eyes. Because the value you assign to something, or in this case, someone, really does affect how he affects you. And that's why we're studying Matthew. To draw near to the good and mighty King Jesus and value Him rightly. Now, I just can't resist showing this to you as well. Watch this as we talk about value assigned. Is that one live? Doesn't look like it. Pray with me. Let's think about how we value Jesus. It gives us pause. Father makes us think about how we value your son. 
And I pray, I pray today your spirit would use um, these thought-provoking things to bring us to your word with hearts eager to bow down low before our good and mighty King Jesus. So may your spirit have full reign and rule over each heart. We lay down our resistance to him. We, we give you our full attention. We, we bow down and we invite you now to teach us. Show us Jesus that we might value him rightly. And we ask this in his great name. Amen. If you open your Bibles up to Matthew 3, that's where we'll be today. I, I want to begin by thinking about uh, what Matthew has already shown us about Jesus. Who is, who is Matthew? Just in two and a half chapters, um, who has he shown Jesus to be? He's the son of David and of Abraham. But he's also the heir of a prostitute and of Gentiles, of wicked kings and adulterers. His name is Jesus. The one who will save his people from their sin. He's to be called Emmanuel. It means God with us. He's born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, worshipped by the Magi, feared by kings, predicted by the prophets. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one mightier than and exalted far above the greatest man ever born of woman. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the one who judges with unquenchable fire. That's who Matthew, in just this little couple couple of chapters, has shown us who this Jesus is. And today we want to draw near to him, near to the good and mighty king, um, as he submits to the baptism of John the Baptist who we met last week in last week's passage. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, it reads this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then... Then, says John, consented. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is, Jesus is coming with great intentionality. This is the purpose of his journey from Galilee. It is to be baptized by John. And this is one of those times when I, uh, I wonder what it must have been like. Some have suggested that this baptism was a private affair with just Jesus and John. But when you, you know, the context makes me think otherwise. If we just back up a chapter and we watch how John was baptizing, um, even or earlier in this chapter, in verse 5, we see that there were crowds coming from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. Crowds of people coming out to John. A long line of people preparing to be baptized. And likely they weren't like the, you know, the creme de la creme of the day. The religious leaders were turned away. I imagine that this were common folk. They were fishermen and tax collectors and carpenters and maybe even people that were cast out from society. There might have been those unmentionables. There might have been thieves and prostitutes and liars and cheats. And one by one, they were all being plunged by John under the murky waters 
of the Jordan River as they confessed their sin. Can you, can you imagine what that would look like if you were standing on the banks and you could see that scene unfolding? And um, it was in that line of those folk, likely, that Jesus was standing. And when he came, came to John, it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And I wonder, just as I'm imagining this in my mind, I wonder if John, you know, he's baptizing one after the other after the other, and he finishes the last sinner, and he goes, next, and he turns, and it's Jesus, who is his cousin. He knows him. And he knows he's the one that he's not worthy to carry his sandals, he said. Just last week's passage. He's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's just working with dirty Jordan River water. Dale Bruner says, It's as if one were to announce the coming of a great preacher at a series of evangelistic meetings, and one night the preacher arrives, not at the platform, but at the altar, not at the podium, but at the penitence bench, not to preach, but to kneel. See, this is upside down. This is, this is Michael Jordan showing up at upwards basketball practice as a player. Okay, Coach me. This is Josh Hamilton at t-ball practice. This is Adele at Introduction to Voice 101. This is Dale Jr. taking driver's ed. It's, it's awkward because it's so backwards. John needs to be baptized by Jesus, and Jesus is coming to be baptized by John. It's awkward because of what it implies. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. The people stood there confessing their sins. What did Jesus have to confess? If Jesus is the sinless one that Isaiah predicted, why was he there in that line with everybody else? So it's more than understandable that John pushes back saying, I need to be baptized by you, not vice versa. It's kind of like, like Peter. When Jesus tries to wash Peter's feet and Peter objects, the roles are reversed here. The master is serving, the baptizer is to be baptized. Jesus is insistent, and so he says to John, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us, you and me, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, essentially, this is the way that it has to be for us to fulfill the Father's good plan. This is what must be done. And so John consents. And if you can imagine, I mean, think about one of our lake baptisms. Rob Craig out in the water baptizing Jesus. This is what just happened. And John, what I love about John in this passage is that he shows us what true humility is like. It should make us, true humility should make us keenly aware 
of our undeservedness, our unworthiness, it should make us ask the question, who am I to be asked to serve in this way? You ever felt like that where somebody comes and asks you to do something, especially something where it's in service to Christ um, explicitly, and you're like, who am I to be asked to do that? Um, that's, uh, I, think it, I think that's probably one of the questions I regularly face when, I, when Sunday mornings roll around. Who, who am I to stand up and speak for God about whatever subject it is? Because I'm so aware that I fall so far short. You know, it's, on the one hand, it's what I do best, probably, but it's what I am, on the other hand, perhaps most unworthy to do. Um, so some people ask me if I get nervous about preaching after 20-some years, and I don't think I get as nervous as I used to get. Um, but I get really small and really weak. And very aware of my own sin. And you can't help but ask the question, who am I to serve in such a way? So I think true humility always makes us aware that we're unworthy to serve so great a king in the way that he has asked us to. I worry about people who, who love to preach and are just eager about it. I worry about those guys. I'm not sure they know what they are asked to do. Um, but true humility makes us aware that we are unworthy. But true humility, watch John, does not keep us from serving. Um, in our passage, John consents. He knows more than maybe anybody on earth, maybe anybody in history, that he's unworthy to do what he's being asked to do. Baptize Jesus. Okay. Baptize Jesus. But he still does it. He still obeys. And that's why I still preach. Our humility ought not keep us from obeying. It ought not make us feel useless. It ought not leave you in despair. True humility comes, yes, from seeing ourselves and our sins, to be sure. But we see those things in the light of Christ. Not, we don't just see our sins. We see our sins in light of Christ. And it humbles us. It makes us aware of our sins. But it gives us hope. He is the one who has borne our sins and has called us into his service. So the humbling question of who am I has to be swallowed up by the hopeful question, who is he who is calling me to this service? He's the one, he is the one who has died for my sins and set me free from them. If this change in focus does not happen and your focus remains solely or even primarily on you and your sins, you will be mired in despair. It is fodder for depression to think just about you and your sins. Me is a very dark hole to peer into. 
If John the Baptist had just stayed focused on his unworthiness to even carry Christ's sandals, he'd have have walked away from that river and walked off into the desert and we'd never heard from him again. But John didn't, and you mustn't. Your humility should give you pause because of who you are, and then your humility before Christ should fuel your obedience because of who He is and what He has done for you. As Paul would say, His grace is sufficient. So your humility, let your humility cause you great sorrow for your sin on the one hand and fuel great obedience before your Savior on the other. By the all-sufficient grace and mercy of Christ himself, rise up and teach that second grade class. Okay, It's a hypothetical example this morning. Somebody's teaching that class. No longer have need of that. You could rise up and stand before a group of young teen moms and tell them the difference that Christ has made in your life, even if you're not a professional speaker. If Christ is calling you, the question is not just who am I, but it is also who is he, the one who calls. And John is our beautiful example in this. So he consents and baptizes Jesus. And then in verse 16 it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And it's like this threefold heavenly divine spotlight is now shining down on Christ. There is the heavens are opened, the Spirit descends, and The Father's affirming voice is heard. The opening of the heavens seems to be connected to what Isaiah longed for. Hundreds of years before, when he prayed in Isaiah 63, it says, Look down from heaven and see, he prays. From your holy and beautiful habitation, where are, you, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And I... I think what we have in the opening of the heavens is the fulfillment of Isaiah's longing and prayer that the heavens would be opened and Christ, the long-awaited hope of Israel, their deliverer, their Messiah, has come. That's the first spotlight. The second one is the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus, evidently in some visible fashion. And the image of the dove has different meanings throughout the scriptures. One, if you remember when Noah was on the ark, he had a dove fly out. It brought back to him uh, a leaf that represented that the waters were receding. It was safe to exit the ark. And it represented the creation of a whole new, the dawning of a whole new age, a whole new world. Um, Jesus uses doves in a different way when he says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. 
a reference perhaps to meekness. But I, th- I think the greater emphasis here is not so much the dove imagery as it is the coming down. The spirit coming down. And again, it, it takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. This is like five, seven hundred years before. And Isaiah says in chapter 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And here the imagery of gentleness is applied to the suffering servant of the Lord, whom Isaiah says will come from heaven and bring justice um, to the nations. The descending spirit points to Jesus as that suffering servant who has come for us. And then the third light shining down on him is that voice. Uh, the Father's voice from heaven, affirming his great pleasure in his Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this too has echoes of the Old Testament, of one of perhaps one of the great messianic psalms that looked forward to the Messiah. Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 says, Well, tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Bruner describes this powerfully. He says, only twice in the synoptic gospels does God the Father speak directly to the world from heaven. At Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration. And both times the Father says the same thing. This is my priceless son. I am deeply pleased with him. If we hear the Father's twice repeated voice at baptism and transfiguration correctly, he writes... The one fact the Father wants believers to know, um, apparently above all other facts, is how much we have in Jesus. My priceless Son, deeply pleased. If we know this, Bruner writes, we know the most important fact in the world. So, as Daniel mentioned, we have a really rare glimpse of the Trinity at work here. The Son is baptized and the Spirit comes upon Him and the Father affirms Him with His voice. Um, A remarkable, remarkable glimpse that what Jesus' baptism is birthing is the work of Father, Son, and Spirit together as one. Why... Why is Jesus being baptized? What is his baptism accomplishing for us? Um, But let me back up one more question before that. Why is the father so pleased with his son? What about his life thus far, especially in this baptism, causes the father to rend the heavens and declare, as the Message Bible puts it, This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. Why does the father say that? If I was going to answer that question um, in a single word, I would say it is the son's humility, his, his lowness. 
And I think that's evident here. Again, Bruner says, to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit is to be led downward in the service of persons and into the common ministries of life. As the next chapter with Jesus' temptations will teach us more clearly, to be under the influence of a false spirit is to be increasingly lifted up in experiences of first the remarkable, then the extraordinarily, and finally the glorious. The evil one leads up saying, you shall be like God's. The Holy Spirit leads down, saying, you shall be everyone's servants. And he says, the whole ministry of Jesus proves this. The whole ministry of Jesus proves this. I would agree. His lineage proves it. It's pockmarked with the unlikely and the unknown and even the shocking. His birth proves it. He's born in an obscure village amongst the animals. His choice of disciples proves it. They're fishermen and tax collectors, dull commoners at best. His ministry amongst the poor and the outcast proves it. He, he touches um, bleeding women and he touches lepers and he holds children on his lap. His submission to the Father proves it, whether that's at baptism or at the cross. His silence before his accusers proves it. No rebuttal, no self-defense is made. His bearing of the cross proves it ultimately and finally. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross, Paul writes. And today, as, we've, as we're seeing, his baptism proves it. He's taking his place amongst lowly sinners to be baptized by John for repentance and forgiveness of sins, which he did not need and did not have. Jesus did not need to repent. He had no sins. Why did he do that? Why was he so intent that he made this journey to be baptized? Why didn't he just agree with John and say, all right, I'll baptize you? That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Some have described it as what Jesus is doing is his identification baptism. One commentator says, this is Jesus' first adult act in the Gospels. He'd been a child up until then. And now in one scene, we see what Jesus will be like in the rest of the Gospel. He writes, I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of his humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It's well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between two thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming completely one with us in our humanity. Jesus, in his baptism, is identifying with sinners. He's taking his place with rebels and adulterers, and liars. And he's declaring his mission of standing with sinners. Better put, standing in the place of sinners. Okay. Imagine with me that you are in that line. Okay. You have come out to be baptized by John, and you're standing there. And you're watching people get baptized. Imagine with me 
that a guy comes up alongside you and you think he's cutting in line and you're fixing to have another sin to confess because you're going to deal with this guy who's about to cut in line. But he doesn't want to cut in line. He taps you on the shoulder and he wants, he wants to take your place in line. And it's Jesus. And he says, I'll confess your sins. I'll go in the water for your sins. And he moves to the next person in line, the next person in line. And that's why he's in the water. For our sin. Now the illustration isn't perfect. We, we still follow Christ in baptism. If anything, when you're done with this this passage today, if you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, you ought to long to be baptized here in February when we gather for baptism the first Sunday night of the month. You ought to be running tomorrow morning to talk to Rob Craig, fresh back from sabbatical, and say, Rob, I want to be baptized. Baptize me. I want to follow Christ in baptism. But thinking like that does get at the point of why Jesus was baptized by John. Not for his sins. It was for hours. He's identifying with us. Luther said, Jesus' baptism is Jesus' decision to begin his life of identification with sinners as if, as if Christ wanted to say, although I am not myself a sinner, yet nevertheless I now bring with the sin of the whole world. I bring with me the sin of the whole world so that I am, now I am only a sinner and the greatest sinner of the whole world Jesus becomes for us. Jesus is baptized, someone has said, not because he shares our need, but in order to share it. In his baptism, Jesus is pointing to the cross where he truly would bear the sins of the world. And I think that's why, on a couple of occasions, Jesus refers to the cross as his baptism. Here's an example, Mark chapter 10, James and John brokering for places of prominence near Jesus. And Jesus said to them, do you not know, you do not what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about his death. He's talking about the cross. Matt Woodley says Jesus' river baptism prefigures his cross baptism. Both were bodily expressions of his desire to be with us in order to save us. So as followers of Jesus, when we are baptized, we are following Jesus' example in baptism. As he was baptized, so we are baptized. When we are baptized, we are obeying Jesus as he commanded us to. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, Jesus would say. When we are baptized, we are identifying with the purposes of his, great, his greater baptism of the cross. We are we are aligning ourselves, we're committing ourselves to the purposes of Jesus' death in our life. Zechariah would prophesy about those purposes when John the Baptist was born. He says in Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's Jesus. 
in the house of his holy servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we, God's done all this, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteous, righteousness before him all our days. When we are baptized, we are saying yes to the good purposes of God in our lives. We follow Christ's example, we follow Christ in obedience, and we commit ourselves to walk in accordance with the purposes of Christ's great cross baptism for us. At the end of um, our messages, I, um, I often worry about you. Because I know that some of you, you're, you're checking your watches and you're thinking about something next when you haven't dealt with what is now. Okay. And we joke about the great eraser at the outside doors and you go through it and you forget everything that God has said to you. Um, and so we think about how should we respond? Well, how do we help people with responding? Should they come forward for prayer? Should they, you know, should they... One time we had all the guys stand in a big circle around the room and pray for those who they were responsible to care for. We do a lot of different things. I want today to step outside of our tradition into another stream of Christian tradition. And I want us to do a responsive reading between the pastor and the congregation. And this reading, the purpose of this reading is to publicly declare our faith and commit to follow Christ as Lord all of our days. It's essentially a renewal of the commitments we made when we were baptized as followers of Christ. Um, the danger, of course, with these kind of readings is you can kind of go into an autopilot and not think deeply about what you're saying. Think deeply about what you're saying as we renew together our baptism, in a sense. As we as we say again what we said when we were plunged under the waters of baptism, identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection, following his example in baptism. Listen closely to the words as we treasure the one who was baptized for our sins, both in water and on the cross, and we renew our love and obedience to him supremely. So if you will stand with me. I want you to direct your attention to the screen and your hearts to the Lord as I ask you to profess your faith in Christ Jesus, reject sin, and confess the faith of the church. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer? I will, with God's help. Will you persevere in resisting evil? And whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? With God's help. Do you renounce all the devil and all the forces who defy God? Do you renounce the powers of this world that rebel against God? Do you renounce the ways of sin that draw you from God? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you pray with me? Lord, by your Spirit, may our profession become our lives. May that which we have renounced, may we renounce it when we leave this room. May that which we have committed to be our, our commitments when we leave this room. And all by your grace, all by your mercy, by your spirit, as we follow the ways of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name.